I invite you to make your way to Romans chapter 8. Our text today is going to be verse 28 through 30 as I introduce a new series of messages on what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus and practical spiritual formation. Today is the beginning of that and we'll lay the foundation of where we're headed for the weeks to come. So if you'll make your way to Romans 8, uh, we'll read those verses here in just a moment. In Conformed to His Image, Kenneth Boa shared the following illustration. He said, The tragedy of life without an ultimate source of meaning is captured in a scene from the story Don Quixote. When Quixote tells Sancho Panza about the look he saw in the eyes of the soldiers who lay dying in his arms... He said their eyes seemed to be asking a question. Sancho asked, was it the question, why am I dying? Quixote replies, no, it was the question, why am I living? And then Boa says this, if we do not have a lasting and satisfying answer to this question, why am I living? We may deceive ourselves into thinking we are in control or we know where we're going when in reality, we're just lost in the cosmos. In our lives, we experience God with the entirety of our being. Body, mind, emotion, will, personality, every aspect of our being. And I'm going to give you a definition of spiritual formation that I think will guide the direction that we're headed in with this particular emphasis. And here it is. Spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus for our good and for God's glory and for the blessing of others. It is dependent on the Spirit of God and the Word of God at work in our lives. So I want to make clear from the outset here that spiritual formation is not about try harder and do better. The gospel is where God is calling us to live, in his grace, by his power, and yes, we strive after Christ. Yes, we apply ourselves to spiritual growth. Yes, we desire spiritual formation, but this is not in our own strength. We are living out the strength of God in our lives. This is the spirit of God alive and at work in us. And that's what we want to consider in the weeks to come as we focus on some specific characteristics from the life of Jesus. And I think one of the most important things about reaching any goal is beginning with the end in mind. Or to think about it this way, what is our preferred vision for the future for our lives, for our collective work as the body of Christ here at Cross Lanes Baptist Church? And then for the kingdom of God as we labor together uh, to glorify God and to carry out his will in our lives. If we begin with that, we can end up in the right place. We can experience Jesus as the goal of it all. Jesus as the preferred vision. Jesus as the one on whom we fix our eyes because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, we're going to read all three of these verses, and then we're going to emphasize the phrase in the middle, to be conformed to the image of his son. 
we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In those he predestined, he also called. In those he called, he also justified. In those he justified, he also glorified. I believe that God cares about every aspect of your life. In his sovereignty, God is able to take the good and the bad and everything in between and cause it to work together for our good. Understand, everything is not good. There are a lot of things that are just downright bad. They're not pleasant. They're not good in any way. But God is able to take even those things and work them out for our good. And that's the emphasis of verse 28. We also note here that God in his sovereignty works in what I would call an eternal chain in our lives. The Bible says of believers that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now Christ is the image of the invisible God. The Bible says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of his nature. When Jesus walked on the earth in the likeness of men, he perfectly displayed the image of God in every regard. Being conformed is translated from a word which means literally to receive the same form as or to render like. That's what it means to be conformed. And it is an ongoing process. It is something that happens because of something else. So to be conformed to the image of Jesus is only possible through God's work of sanctification in our lives. When we repent and believe in Jesus, we turn from our sins and we turn to the Savior. God justifies us and he declares us righteous in Jesus. So that means that God looks at us through the righteousness of Christ. He imputes that righteousness to us, and that's what justification is all about. It is a legal declaration where God is saying that we are righteous, not based on our works or our efforts or our abilities. We are righteous based on the finished work of Jesus. And in that, we are also sanctified. We're set apart by God for his own purposes. Now think about it this way. When we are in Christ, we have been sanctified because of the declaration of God in our justification. We are being sanctified, meaning that we're growing in our relationship with God. It's a progressive sanctification. And we will be sanctified when God finishes the work that he has begun in our lives. Conformity to the image of Christ will ultimately result in glorification at the resurrection. And God's purpose in doing this in our lives, according to what Romans 8 tells us here, is so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, meaning that he has and will eternally have preeminent status above everyone and everything. So when we speak of Christ as the one who is the firstborn, 
He's the one who is preeminent over all. And because he is preeminent over all, that means that he gets the glory, he gets the credit, he gets the attention, and we get the blessing of being able to grow to be more like him. So let me say it to you this way. God's plan for your life as a Christian is that you would grow in conformity to the image of Jesus. That's the preferred vision. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17 and 18 says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So I want to ask and answer this question in the few moments that we have together. As disciples of Jesus, how are we conformed to his image? As disciples of Jesus, how are we conformed to his image? First of all, disciples are conformed to the character of Jesus. We're conformed to the character of Jesus. So what is the character of Jesus all about? Ultimately, it's about holiness. It's a holiness that is unlike any other, separate from anything that is evil. And holy for us means to be set apart or to be separate from sin and evil. Now, understand that this holiness of Jesus was not something that he acquired when he came to the earth. Oh, no. The holiness of Jesus... He has possessed that eternally. And when he came to the earth, when he was incarnate, when he was dwelling among men, he lived that out perfectly and completely on the earth. And here's how the Bible describes it. That Jesus was without sin. He was the one who committed no sin. He was the one in him who had no sin. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Remember at one point in the ministry of Jesus, he looked at the Pharisees and he asked, can, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? That was a rhetorical question. He was stating the obvious, that nobody could say that he had sinned or had done wrong in any way. But clearly that's not the case for us. Think all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God made Adam and Eve and he placed them there to fellowship with him. They were created in the image of God. They had the ability before sin entered into the world to live according to the holiness of God. They could willingly obey God. However, they rebelled against God. They ceased to be holy in their rebellion against God. They lost the ability to live according to the holiness of God. Now, obviously, the image of God did not totally go away, but it was deeply marred by sin. It was deeply affected by sin. And that's the condition that we find ourselves in, in our fallen nature. But when we repent and by faith trust in Jesus, then God declares us righteous because of his finished work and here's what Romans 5 and verse 19 says. For as through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. That's everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 49 says, 
Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, once again, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. So here it is. In the first Adam, we bear the image of dust. In Christ, we bear the image of heaven. And what God is doing in us is he is transforming us so that we can be conformed to him. Philippians 3 and verse 21 says, he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. When we take seriously the holiness of Christ and his moral perfection and his hatred of sin, i tell you what it does for me. I'm dismayed at my own lack of holiness. Or let me state it a little bit more practically. If in fact Jesus is the preferred vision, Jesus is the end goal, that we are growing in our likeness of Jesus, when I look to him, I see how far I have to go. And how much God wants to do in me and in you. Now, holiness is not a particularly popular topic in the church. George Barna, the researcher, said that holiness is a matter that is embraced by the Christian church, meaning that everybody in here is going to agree, yeah, we need to be holy. Yes, that's that's what God wants for our lives. Obviously, that's the plan. But... How many of us adopt this as a focal point of our faith development? How many of us are compelled to grow in our holiness and our likeness of Jesus? Barna did some research and he said that barely one-third of Americans contend that God expects you to become holy. He said if you uh, survey the born-again people, um, he said 46% of them understand that. But even so, it's a minority. And then Barna says this. Realize that the results portray a body of Christians who attend church and maybe even read the Bible. But do not understand the concept or the significance of holiness. They do not personally desire to be holy. And therefore, they do little, if anything, to actually pursue it. That ought not to be if we call ourselves followers of Christ. We ought to be conformed to the character of Jesus. J.C. Ryle wrote a book in the late 19th century. It's a classic on holiness. And it's entitled Holiness, It's Nature, Hindrances, Difficulties, and Roots. And he noted several characteristics of practical holiness. I won't share them all, but I do want to point to just a few. He said holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. And we find his mind described in the scripture. So if we are of one mind with God, we're trying to discern what God hates so that we can hate it. And what God loves... So we can love it. We are following after the mind of Christ that's been given to us as a gift. He says a holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He'll have a bent toward God and a desire 
to do his will. Again, this is not outwardly motivated as much as it is internally determined and then outwardly expressed. Because as the Spirit dwells in us and we pursue Christ and his word, then we're desiring to live as he lived. And then a holy man will strive to be like Christ and will desire to follow after him in all of his ways. And then finally, Ryle says, a holy man will follow after purity of heart. He knows his own heart and will diligently seek to keep it from the sparks of temptation. You know what I figured out in the Christian life? Different things tempt different people in different ways. The enemy knows what you're drawn toward. Some things that really bother you, tempt you, I don't even think about them. Some things that really bother me and tempt me probably not have even crossed your radar. So we have to learn ourselves as much as we have to learn Christ. And we have to know what our blind spots are. We we have to know what our proclivities are. We have to know what our weaknesses are. We have to know what our, our space is in our lives where we're prone to weakness and prone to the enemy. And ask God to help us in that so that we might be conformed to the character of Jesus. And then second, disciples are conformed to the life of Jesus. This is sort of a progression because we're thinking first about who Jesus is, and then now we're thinking about how Jesus lived, and ultimately we'll look at how Jesus died and what that has uh, as an effect on us. But as we think about being conformed to the life of Jesus, what was the life of Jesus primarily focused on on this earth? Doing the will of the Father. That's what it was focused on. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we cannot be satisfied with teaching only principles of the faith in theory. Because if we're teaching only principles of the faith in theory, then what that turns out as is a bunch of professing believers who know a lot of stuff, but they don't know what to do with it. Discipleship is more than just knowing a lot of stuff. There are a lot of people who are smart about things of the Scripture who don't necessarily apply it. God help us that we'd not just be smart about the things of God, but that we would actually live it. That we'd be a transformed people. That's what it's all about. It's life with God. And we follow Christ as our example for that. Think about the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1 where he said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I want you to think about what Paul was doing. He was inviting other people to look at his life. And he was saying, follow me as I follow Christ. The word for uh, imitators means to emulate a pattern. It's used seven different times in the New Testament. Octavius Winslow noted, there is no single practical truth in the word of God on which the spirit is more emphatic than the example which Christ has set for his followers to imitate. The church needed a perfect pattern, a flawless model. It wanted a living embodiment of those precepts of the gospel so strictly enjoined upon every believer and God has graciously set before us the true model. Ephesians 5 and verse 1, therefore be imitators of God 
as beloved children. Now, some of you might have heard, or many of you might have heard of the name Lee Strobel. Now, Lee Strobel was, was a famous atheist at one time who came to know Christ as his Savior and has done a tremendous amount of kingdom work since then. Uh, he's known mostly for the case for Christ, his book that he wrote about his experience and his journey toward the gospel and, and toward Christ. You might not be as familiar with his wife, Leslie Strobel, but God began to work in her life before he brought Lee to the saving knowledge of Christ. In fact, she became a Christian in 1979, and she modeled the faith in such a way that her atheistic husband, Lee Strobel, began his own search for God. And in the book that I referenced, The Case for Christ, he tells of his two years of intensive research that finally led him to receive Jesus as his Savior. Highly educated, a law degree from Yale, an award-winning career in journalism at the Chicago Tribune, Lee had the ability to answer some tough questions when he was done with his search, but most importantly, he had Christ. And the change in his life also influenced their five-year-old daughter, Allison, at the time, who said, I quote, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. Leslie's faith had created a ripple effect that changed the entire family. Lee Strobel recently released the movie, The Case for Heaven, based on a book, and he was inspired by a brush with death and began to search for answers to questions that people have about heaven and hell and near-death experiences. But I tell you that story for one reason. Your example matters. That's the reason. Your example matters to your spouse. Your example matters to your kids. Your example matters to your grandkids. Your example of Christ matters to the people that you work with. Your example of Christ matters to your neighbors. Your example of Christ matters to your church family. And it causes us to search our own hearts because while our example can be the most persuasive influence for Christ, we've got to ask ourselves the question, do others imitate us because we model Christ? Are we giving them something to imitate? And it's been said that to imitate requires replicating internal motivation as well as external behavior. And to imitate Christ means that we're going to draw close to him. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. We're going to abide in him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're going to hear his voice through the word and the spirit, and we're going to be obedient to him. Listen to me carefully. The Christian faith is about life with God, now and eternally. That's what it's about. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about coming and sitting in a, in a seat on a Sunday morning so that you can feel good about yourself the rest of the week. That's not ultimately what it's about. It's about life with God. Don't miss out on the best of what God has to offer, and that is himself. That's why we're here. We're here because 
We understand what he's done. We understand his grace. We, we look to Jesus and we want to be conformed in his character and we also want to be conformed to his life. But then third and finally, disciples are conformed to the death of Jesus as well. There's interesting language in Philippians chapter 3 about this. As we commit ourselves to knowing Christ, something happens to us. And what happens to us is we find ourselves being conformed to his death. And Paul speaks in Philippians 3 about the death of our old self or our flesh. Listen to what he says in verse 10 and 11. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, our spirit is alive in Christ when we come to faith, but we still have the challenge of the fact that we live in the flesh and we are torn between the struggles of the flesh and life in the spirit. We are torn so much to the point that Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7 as a war. You are engaged in a war. That's how serious it is. And we are not going to find the victory unless we are being conformed to the death of Jesus so that self is surrendered and the Savior is preeminent. Now, being conformed to his death begins with experiencing the power of the resurrection. You remember how Paul, Saul, came to know the power of the resurrected Jesus when he met him on the road to Damascus? Now I understand that every conversion experience is not going to be that dramatic, but I guarantee you that every conversion experience requires the same power because it requires that God raise those who are spiritually dead to bring us to spiritual life. The scripture says that we are, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. A dead person cannot make themselves alive. It is God who quickens us. And when we believe in him by faith, we begin to experience the power of his resurrection. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is necessary for you to live a victorious Christian life. And this is why so many people don't experience the victory in their Christian life is because they're trying to do it in their own strength and their own power. It's the reason that why churches just go through the motions and eventually die because they're trying to do things in their own power rather than the power of the resurrection. And we must live in the power of the resurrection because if we live in the power of the resurrection, we can experience supernatural things happening in our midst. And that's what we desire. That's what we long for. That's what we pray for so that when we see it happen, we can say, only God, only God could have done that. And we give him the credit and the glory for it. Paul indicates also in Philippians 3 that being conformed to his death requires knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. He never promised it was going to be easy. And yet fellowship points to closeness and intimacy. Jesus suffered for our sins on the cross. And because 
he suffered will not experience the suffering in the same way that he did, but it will be a reality. And what will happen when we suffer with him is that our lives will be purified and it will cause us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In a significant part of being conformed to the image of Jesus is your fellowship with God. That's how Jesus described eternal life. When you look at Jesus' definition of eternal life in John chapter 17, he's all about the fellowship. Knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. I've been very encouraged in recent weeks, in the last few months even, by the stirring that I have seen among God's people in our church in a desire simply to be together. Now, there's a lot of other things that are happening as we're together. But the desire to be together, the desire to fellowship, where's that coming from? Of course, practically, it's coming from the fact that we've been isolated. But it's coming from somewhere a lot deeper than that. It's coming from the depths of our understanding and hunger for fellowship with God. That's where it's coming from. And we have a common hunger to fellowship with God. And as we have a common hunger to fellowship with God, we've got a common desire to fellowship together. And that's what the church is about. It's about life with God, but it's about life with God together. That's how God designed us. We're not just here as religious consumers. We're not just here to check off a spiritual box in our lives. We are here to experience the living God. That's why we're here. And as we come together to experience the living God, we experience it together. And we experience fellowship with Jesus as we do it. And being conformed to his death means that we're going to identify with him in a surrendered life. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me tell you what this is all heading toward. It's all going to culminate in our own resurrection from the dead. The somehow word that Paul uses in Philippians 3 is not a statement of uncertainty, but rather of the manner in which he would attain it. We will be like Jesus. We will be separated from sin. We will share in his glory. And that somehow is by the grace of God. Now, something that's interesting to me always is uh, family likeness. You know, some families are really strong resemblance to one another. Like, like if, if you know one family member and you see another family member, you're like, there's no doubt who that person belongs to. There's no doubt whose son that is. There's no doubt whose sister that is. There's no doubt whose brother that is. But did you know that family likeness can not only be physical appearance, but it can also be our behaviors, the traits that we live by. I think it can be both inherited and learned. And I think ultimately this is about family resemblance. 
that spiritually, once we've been born again, we have the life of God within us so that we'll be like Jesus. So let me just ask you a very practical question. Does your life reflect Jesus in such a way that people would be able to identify whose family you belong to? Would the likeness of Jesus in your life be so strong that there'd be no doubt whose you are? 1 John 3 and verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Someday we will see Jesus face to face in all of his glory. And the Bible says when we do, we will be like him. We'll be the people that we long to be people that we were born again to be and that gives us hope and I don't know about you but I don't want to stand before Jesus ashamed of how I've used the opportunities he's given me the grace that he's extended to me the power that resides in me the gifts he's entrusted to me I don't want to waste it. It'll be all of grace, but when I see him face to face, I want to know that his life, his death, his character have been my pursuit all along. We need to comprehend, desire, and pursue conformity to the image of Jesus in our lives. That's what we need to do. And God will bring it about in our lives. I share this and I'm going to close. Often when I'm sharing the gospel with people, I'll talk to, the, to them about the Christian life as a race, which is a metaphor that's used in the scripture, of course. And I'll say something like this. In the Christian life, it's just like a, a race. You understand in a race that there's a, there's a starting line, and then in a race, there's a finish line, and everything in between is the race. Well, let me tell you what that starting line over there is. That's the point at which you're confronted with who God is and who you are, and of your need for him. And that starting line is when you come to the place where you repent of your sins. And by faith, you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's the starting point of the Christian life. And I'm speaking in terms of our earthly lives. There's going to be a finish line someday. And that finish line for you on this earth is going to be when you draw your last breath. We don't know when it's going to be. We might be young. We might be old. We might be somewhere in between. But there's going to be a finish line. Everybody's going to reach it if Jesus tarries his coming. And that finish line is going to be when the opportunity's over, your life is up, it's gone, it's done, it's over with, and you step out into eternity. 
That space in between from the starting line to the finish line in this life is called the Christian life. And that's your life with God. And you get to choose how you're going to use that Christian life. You can run the race well. You can be disciplined. You can apply yourself. And ultimately, you can experience all that God has for you. Or you can be lazy and undisciplined and unfocused. Get off course. Not be faithful. And miss the blessing. First of all, if you've not started there at that starting line, you need to come to faith in Christ. Everybody's got a starting line. Nobody's automatically a Christian. There's a point at which you repent and you believe. And that's where some of you are here today. God's bringing you to the the starting line. And he's saying, you need to trust in Jesus. You need to be saved. It's God's invitation to you to be saved, to get on the starting line and say, I'm trusting in Christ, and I'm going to live the rest of my life. Whatever time I have left, I'm going to live it for him, and I'm going to run my race well. And then when you get to the finish line, and you see him face to face, it'll all come together. And you'll understand the great grace that's been, expen- that's been extended to your life. Where are you at today? Do you need to start? Do you need to refocus so that you can run well? What's God saying to you through his word? Father, we thank you today that we can come together as your people. I'm thankful for the gospel of grace so that we can live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. I pray you would encourage every one of us to understand the gift that has been given to us. And I pray that we would be concerned about Christian formation, practically applying these things so that our being conformed to the image of Jesus might be a reality. And I pray that would be the the passion of our church, that, that Jesus is the preferred vision, that he's our focus as the author and the finisher of our faith, that he's our emphasis. And as we focus on him, that the rest of life would come into focus as well. God, I don't know where people are today spiritually, but I pray that you would work in their hearts and their lives as we come to a close of this service and that your spirit would speak to us the words that we need to hear and lead us in the direction that we need to go. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.